welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. There are two very different aspects to the hairdressing industry. First, there's the business element of running a salon and all that goes with it. And secondly, there's a creative and emotional side of hairdressing. And that is what draws most of us to hairdressing in the first place. I believe that there are only a few hairdressers that are truly creative and that genuinely push at the boundaries of what creates fashion and what defines beauty. And they indirectly influence all of us. I feel really privileged to be able to delve into what makes them tick on the podcast. My guest today is Nick Irwin, who is quite simply one of the best editorial hairstylists in the business, and he's always pushing at the boundaries of beauty and fashion. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the transition from being a hairdresser's hairdresser to becoming a successful editorial hairdresser what it takes to get into the world of editorial hair, what drives the creative process, the future fashion trends, and the life lessons that he's learned along the way, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Nick Irwin. Hey, Anthony. It's great. uh, What a great honor to be here. I'm I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Um, We've known each other a long time, and um, yeah, so thank you very much for getting me on. Mate, it's been a pleasure. I've uh, I've wanted to have you on for a long time, and I thought, you know, that I need to address something right at the beginning of this, and to get this <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> I think you know exactly what it's going to be, and that is that uh, in the early nineties, um, as a as a new salon owner for myself, uh, I had the opportunity to employ you as a stylist in my salon, and. I knocked you back, <laughs> but I like to think that uh, that obviously set you up for bigger and better things. So, um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a good day. place to start. It's a good place to start. We, um, I remember it really like it was yesterday. I mean, it was it was. I was thinking about it last night. It was it was nineteen ninety three. I think it was early 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 nineteen ninety three, and. We were we were coming out because Tony and Guy was setting up, and um, but there was an issue with the salon opening, or I can't remember what the details were at the time. But anyway, we were out there, and um, and I knew a lot about you. I'd done my homework. I knew your Sassoon background, and I and I thought I'll be I'll be cheeky. I'll go and see him and see if you know he can potentially give me some kind of work. I can work maybe at his salon for a period of time. And I remember rocking up with my portfolio and talking to you about my. What I've been up to and what I've been doing, and you, and I've got to be honest with you, and I, and I've, I've told other people about, especially people at Sassoon, friends of mine at Sassoon, I've told people that, that you were absolutely brilliant because you didn't sort of go, no, we don't have any work, and that's it. You were like, I would love to take you on, you know, you, you'd be, you seem to be the right fit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But obviously, I can't right now. But what you should do is go and see this other particular hairdresser in the in the city at the time. Um, who's, who I'm still to this day great friends with and, and keep in touch with. He was a brilliant man and a, and a bit of a, st- a stalwart sort of hairdresser in uh, in uh, Sydney that in Sydney called John Azzy. And uh, I went to see him, and right away you were absolutely right. As soon as I walked in the door, he said, "Right, when can you start?" And I worked with him until Tony and Guy started in uh, I think about '95. I think it was '96. So yeah, so that was our beginning, Anthony. That was my sort of my my first ever coming into contact with uh, Anthony Whitaker, the the sort of the brand, the legend. Well, we've got we've got <laughs> a lot to we've got a lot to discuss uh, as to as to well who you are and uh, and what you've ch- achieved since then because you know you've had a really interesting uh, career path. You're obviously English, um, and as you've just alluded to, you know my salons were uh, in. Uh, in Sydney, um, and uh, now I'm back in the UK. You're back in the UK, and have been for for many years. But let's start off with a an overview of your background for people who don't know who Nick Irwin is. So, sort of give us your you know two or three minute backstory um, of of what your career path has been up until now, and then we'll go back and we'll dig into some of these things. Okay. 
Well, I, I started, um, fell into hairdressing totally by accident at the age of 14. Um, my father was a musician. He was a drummer and knew a, a local hairdresser. We were from a, a city on the, on the Scottish borders um, between England and Scotland, a, a, little, a little city called Carlisle. I was born there and um, worked, as a, worked, worked as a Saturday boy, like a lot of hairdressers do at the age of 14. And then my last year, so I've ended up not really spending much time at school. I was literally skiving off and going into the salon every day. And, and so really by the age of sort of 16, uh, I, I mean, I've got to be honest with you, I was almost cutting hair. I was almost on the salon floor. I, I was absolutely obsessed. So yeah, so that was kind of where I'd started. And, and, and then from there, I'd sort of wanted to move to a bigger city. I moved to Newcastle. And I worked um, in the early days for a, for a brand called Saks that were, were very, uh, still are very popular, but but in them days, there were sort of their, their salon in Newcastle was very, very, it was their sort of flagship store, worked for them there, and sort of got my first taste of education and traveling. And then the sort of chance by chance meeting, what sort of seeing Anthony and Anthony Muscolo and Tony and Guy in, at Wembley in the sort of early well, maybe late 80s, actually, if I think back. It was probably about 88, I think, or maybe 88, 89. I saw them do this incredible show and then ended up joining them and ended up in Australia. That's how we met. Um, got there a bit too early. And then before Tony and Guy opened up in, in Sydney and spent my sort of my sort of mid-20s working and, and, you know, learning my craft, creative director, looking after this, the academy there, traveling through Southeast Asia, then ended up sort of coming back into uh, into London, and sort of then sort of towards the end of the nineties. Well, actually, ninety seven, ninety eight, I think it was, and worked very close. That's where really my bond with Anthony started to really bloom. Worked with him for a few years, and then went freelance, um, where I was on a retainer with Tony and Guy and TG, and then in two thousand three rejoined TG. Um, to become their sort of creative director. Anthony had, had, had emerged from his, Tony and Guy with his brothers, his brother Tony and Sasha had taken over that side. And then we were looking after TG with Bruno in America and Guy and myself and Anthony at the creative side here in London. So we did that until they sold the business to Unilever in 2009, I think it was. And then that was my sort of calling card really to start thinking about sort of plan B. You know, Unilever we were, were great. They were our new owners, but... I then went into sort of spending more time behind the camera and doing more session work and then left in 2014. Um, and from then till now, I've been in the um, freelance game of a fully-fledged session stylist. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, if that sort of paints the picture. No, no that's it. That, no, that's good. That's good. That gives us some stuff to sort of, you know, um, establish what your background is and sort of set the scene for the stuff we want to talk about. So, you know, that that... I mean, people who know your name will know that you were heavily involved in the salon, the industry side of hairdressing, you know, uh, through yeah. your days at Tony and Guy TG. And, um, you know, so you were very much that sort of that, 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 that hairdresser's hairdresser. Okay. Mm. And it's a very different type of hairdressing to being the hairdresser's hairdresser to then morphing into being a editorial slash, you know, session uh, type of hairdresser. And, and it's a path that not a lot of people are able to make that transition with. So I wanted to talk, you know, uh, uh, about that a little bit, because most people, they underestimate that transition from being a good salon sure. hairdresser or a good, you know, hairdressing show for hairdressers, hairdresser. They underestimate right. that transition into being a fashion editorial uh, yeah. stylist. So, so talk to us about that, because I think that's a really, you know, important, um, you know, journey that you've made and you've done it really well. Mm. Well, thank you. Well, it, it, it is a transition. And I think, you know, we were fortunate sort of in the nineties. Um, Tony, I've been a Tony and Guy in, in them days. We, we had Guido, Guido Palau, who I know has been on, on your podcast, Anthony. And, and, um, so he was a huge influence on us as a creative team, but I think it's two very different worlds. Any anybody who thinks it's similar is 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 sadly mistaken. I think the the only the only thing that's similar is the fact that we we do hair. It's a, it's a completely different world, and and a world that it, it that it's not you not it, your transition isn't for everybody. Um, I think the, the the thing for me at the time of thinking back was 
we were always sort of pushed into working behind the camera and doing image for Tony and Guy. I think even though we were doing traveling and doing shows around the world as 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 an, as an artistic team and and doing and doing you know lots of shows, lots of seminars, education was was what we did. It was king. Um, with Anthony being a Anthony Muscola being a photographer. He really, and people like Guido and other people that were coming out, you know, coming up through the ranks at the time, they were heavily influencing a lot of stylists within the Tony and Guy camp. So I think some of us made a natural progression towards that. Um, I had a chance, the reason I really got into it, I mean, I, I've told this a few times, this story, but I had a chance meeting with, with uh, David Bailey in, in the 90s after coming back from Australia. Sasha, who was working with him, believe it or not, Sasha Muscolo, she was ill. And they sent me along to go and do the hair for a shoot with him. And that was my first real taste of working with somebody of that kind of caliber, that sort of legend. I mean, and I remember him threatening to break my fingers the first day I was there because I was too slow. I mean, it was really scary sort of situation, but there was something amazing about it. And, and sort of, but again, going back to that analogy, that thing, what you're saying about transition, it, it, I, it, I was like a duck out of water. Even though I thought I knew what I was doing because I've been doing hair for hair pictures, doing hair for a fashion story or, or whatever it was we were shooting at the time, I can't remember, um, was a different ball game. And, and just this, the whole, we call it Setiquette now, the etiquette on set. And that's the name that we've come up with, it's Setiquette. And you learn to understand what Setiquette means, which is something you don't know until you thrust into this world so yeah, yeah okay um for anyone who doesn't know who david bailey is um and you know there's a whole new generation of young people you know who don't necessarily yeah, know these names i mean that's right. uh, that's right. for god's sake i meet young hairdressers who don't know vidal sassoon as an actual person so <laughs> uh, well, i can uh, understand that some people may not know that david bailey is an english photographer and he is still alive and kicking uh into his 80s and still doing amazing photographic work but work, in the yeah. 60s um, he was a, you know, well, not just then. He, he started in the 60s as a, an absolute creative legend in terms of the photographic world and, and still to this day as a, as a real iconic photographer. So if you want to see some of his work, I suggest you Google him and you can get an idea of uh, the sort of person that, um, that Nick's talking about. So um, that, that is a, a huge transition. And it's not for everybody, is it? I mean, I dabbled with it for about five mm. minutes, the editorial side. It wasn't me. Right. It just wasn't a fit. Like, and and I, I often say to young hairdressers, because sometimes they, they look at the world that you're in and they go, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do. Mm. But it, mm. just, it just quite simply is a totally different skill set. And it, it isn't for everybody. Not everybody is a fit into that side of things. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever talk someone out of it. But um, no. I, I think a lot of people just underestimate how different it is to being a, you know, a, a salon hairdresser, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how, would you, how would you define that to a young hairdresser? What is the difference between editorial work and salon work? Well, salon work, obviously, you're, you're working on an appointment system with a client every hour or, or whatever your timings are in the salon. And it's a very much a one-on-one -on -one thing between you and your client. It's a, it tends to be a cut and blow dry scenario or a cut and color situation or, you know, whatever else, you know, you know whatever the other sort of part of the service is in the salon. Um, when you're working on a, on a shoot, when you're working on set, that's the the hair becomes part of a narrative, which is lots of different components. Obviously, there's a photographer that's taken the image. There's a, there's a model or a celebrity or a, a person in front of the camera who's the talent. There's a makeup artist, um, style, a fashion stylist, um, a creative director that will potentially be there from either the magazine that you're working for or it could be an advertising job. So there tends to be a large team of people on there. And you as a hairstylist are there to complete um, or add to the scenario that's going to then give you the end result, which is the, the picture or the, or the film that you're working on or whatever it might be. So you very much become part of a, a sort of narrative in that sense. Whereas I think in the salon, a client is paying directly for them to come to you as a hairstylist, a hairdresser, a cutter, a colorist, whatever it might be. And it's a one-on-one -on -one situation. It's a transaction between you and them over that period of time they're in the salon and they leave. 
when you're on set, you can be going in at, say, six in the morning and you can be leaving sometimes at two in the morning the following day, depending on what the job is you're working on. So it's completely different hours, completely different discipline. Um, and you very, very rarely get to cut hair unless you're working with wigs or something in particular more conceptual. It's very much all about styling and learning the tricks and tips of how to manipulate hair that particular way. So very different in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have this expression I use um, called hair porn. And, and what I mean by hair porn is hair for hairdressers. If you look at any collection of hairdressing awards pictures, no matter where they're done in the world, they mm. will predominantly be what I call hair porn. Uh, mm. And it's not, and it's good. It's great. I'm not, mm. I'm not, I'm not being derogatory about it, but there is often a, it's a complete, it can be a completely different type of, of work. And so you, you might be a really established hairdresser in terms of in the eyes of other hairdressers and in the eyes of clients. Mm -hmm. But how do you, I'm trying to find the, the, what, the right word for this, how do you sort of de-hairdresser people mm -hmm. to work in the editorial world and understand what fashion is all about? How do you how do you get them? If you took a young assistant on with you today, who you know maybe not be young, they might have been really successful in the salon side of mm. business, but they need mm. to understand how to sort of de hairdresser themselves. What what is it that they need to get their head around? I think there's, I think there's many there's many things. I think one of the, the first things is to understand that the hair that you do in the salon or for a hair picture for for an awards picture or for a collection. If you do that sort of slightly overcooked, you know, that hair that you're referring to as hair porn for the hairdresser, or, or which is very self-indulgent, if you were to do that on set in maybe some of the work that I do, whether it's a fashion campaign or an editorial or whatever, then it, it's a, you, you'd, you'd probably be kicked off set because they it's a different type of hair. It's a different nuance. It's a different detail that um, completely different aesthetic. And I think... So the first thing you'd ha you have to understand or you have to learn is that you've got to go back to school. Coming out of a salon situation and going into working behind a camera is all about a huge learning curve again. You've got to understand how to research. You've got to, you've got to know all the different sort of elements of maybe fashion moments or, or music history or whatever the references might be. Um, so knowledge is king. And if you talk to any serious, you know, top, top session workers, I, I, I caught a little bit of, your your conversation with Duffy and he went into this about you know culture subculture and, and counter you know street culture where understanding what has happened we're we're fortunate being coming from this part of the world because of, it's very rich in culture so I think drawing on all of those things is is, is part of your history um, which tends to sit outside of what you do sometimes when you're in a salon environment because you're purely concentrating on the hair only um, so I think I think. Hopefully, hopefully that sort of gives you a, a good and that sort of analogy of it. it. It's a tricky one. I mean, I my first assistant Ellie, when she came to me, she was she. What I loved about her was her work ethic. I I feel I can mold most people if they if they've got a, if got if they've got the right work ethic, I can mold them into what I want them to be. Um, I mean, obviously they've got to have a good skill set and whatever, but I can teach them that. I, I mean, that's something that I'm. I think I've got a hopefully I've got a, a gift at. I can teach people. But what you can't teach people is the sort of work ethic and the work mentality of, of that undying sort of, you know, obsession where you'll, you'll be on set and you'll be there and you'll still be absolutely on the ball from the second you arrive to the second you leave. I think they're the sort of qualities that are very, very different. You just, you, you really, you've got, there's no time to sort of lose your, um, your thought or your sort of, you know, your, your, um, yeah, you just got to be on the on your A game, basically. Yeah, if if you were a young hairdresser listening to this, and you were one of those people who aspired to work in this in this area of the industry, um, what is the journey? How do they go about doing it? They're in the salon, they're fully booked, they're doing ten clients a day, they've been doing it for five years, and they think, do you know what? I really want to work on the editorial side of the industry. Mm. What 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 should they do? Well, the first thing, the young, a young assistant, I mean, I did it very differently. So I can't really compare my, my journey, my story 
Yeah. But I think the way I bring people through, um, and I know a lot of other, I mean, I know the, the sort of main, the main way of doing it for people is to, if you're at a, it doesn't matter what age you are either. You don't have to be sort of 17 or 18. It just, you just have to, again, have the right mindset. But really what you need to do is to get onto somebody's team and start assisting. And hopefully then work your way up to first assistant. Once you become first assistant, that means you are pretty much creating the hair with the hairstylist on set. Plus thinking for that particular person and, and creating creating a much um, problem solving in, in situations on set or when you're coming up with a new look or, or might be creating wigs or whatever it might be for, for that particular job. But just somebody that can that you can get into that sort of way of thinking and, and, and working with. So you almost become sort of connected, you know, as one person. It's, it, I've heard people talk about this before. I think anybody who comes into our job who thinks it's just about them as a hairstylist hair as such has, has got another thing coming. It's very much about a team of hairstylists or a hairdresser and assistants coming together to create that look. So I think you need to go out there and assist, um, go back, school and assist you know uh somebody who's already you know doing really well in session that's got a name somebody that you want to emulate the work that you think do you know somebody that's maybe got a name in the fashion industry or or they do great editorial work that you that you like and you feel that you can relate to um and then i think also it's about sort of understanding what you could probably hopefully maybe bring to the table for them you know how could you maybe influence them and and bring your aesthetic into their sort of camp a little bit. I mean, I'm very much when, when my assistants work with me, it's never about just my vision on the end result. It's literally a team decision on, are we making the right thing with the hair? Should we change it and take it in this direction? Is that going to work? Is it totally about putting no product in the hair today and letting the hair just breathe? And I mean, this, it becomes a group decision. And I, and I think so it's, it's been able to get into that sort of headspace um, as well. Yeah, so that that would be my sort of advice as a, as a anybody trying to get into session is to start assisting somebody that they sort of you know they um, they admire in in this game. Okay, so I know that you work almost exclusively with one of the world's most famous photographers, uh, a London photographer by the name of Rankin, who is an absolute you know creative powerhouse, and I'm always intrigued by what hairdressers learn from working with photographers, because, you know, you, you mentioned the the podcast I did with Duffy and the podcast I did with Guido, and both of them alluded to the photographers that they work with. I know Guido was talking um, and, and he a, a lot about this, and he was saying that, you know, he... He was probably talking about David, David Sims. Uh, well, he was talking about he was talking about a couple of photographers. David right, Sims right. was his early, the yeah, earlier mentor, right. but the one that he works with uh, almost exclusively now Stephen. Is, Stephen. Uh, is Stephen Mizell. And he was sort of saying how it's really interesting how they push you and stretch you yeah. and get you to understand. Yeah. You know, beauty, what beauty is all about. So um, I, I love the work that Rankin does. And so what I'm asking you about is how has he influenced you as a hairstylist? How has he changed yeah. your eye and your appreciation for fashion and for beauty? Um, it's a great question, you know, because I, I think absolutely in the last, really interesting looking back at my work in the last four or five years, I would say the last three years, there's this sort of this this sort of um, aesthetic, if you like, has started to sort of form. And I think other hairstylists have asked me this question: you know, where does it come from? And I think it definitely comes from Rankin because he will, if we're coming up with a, a sort of creative project or working on something together, he will always push me outside of my comfort zone and make me or throw something at me which I just would never consider doing. And I think that's when you start to create something which is a bit more magic. And, and so he, the amazing thing about somebody like Rankin is that he, he's got such a massive archive, a mental archive. In, you know, he's been shooting obviously for almost 30 years now and him and Jefferson and Jefferson Hack had started Days Confused in the early nineties. And that became culturally one of the most important sort of culture and uh, fashion magazines globally and I think so with all of that knowledge and and every time he says something even if I disagree with it I tend to let go because I have such an amount of respect for him I have a trust for him when I think 
he's gonna he's gonna get something out of me. Sometimes it goes tits up and it doesn't work, and we and he, you know you have to pull away and, and laugh and think right okay, but that's a very rare occurrence to be honest with you. What we tend to do is get something quite special and unique. And one thing that we have this, and this is for everybody listening out there, which is super important. And I my my team will tell you this. My assistants, I'm obsessed with not ever copying anybody. So we can be influenced by each other. We can be influenced by, you know, Eugene's a great friend of mine. I speak to him nearly every day. You know, he's a really, really close friend. And I love what he does. And I'm obsessed with what he does. Yeah, I could not be seen to be copying Eugene. Because, and it can quite easily get under your skin, that stuff, because they're so at the head of, the, you know, the head of the curve. But for me, it's about, you know, working with somebody like Rankin, it's about him pushing me into an area where, Maybe we, not that we haven't seen it before, but we haven't seen it in that particular way. Um, and that's what's special about the relationship with him and, and probably led me to become who I, you know, the, the partnership I have with him almost. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. It's sort of tied up in what I was talking about earlier on with with mm. hairdressers who go from the salon environment or the, the hairdressing environment into the editorial environment. Is it, and I'm not even sure what I'm going to ask you here, but it's that it's almost not about what you do. It's about what you don't do. Do you know what I mean? You it's about, it's about you learning to look at someone and just go, do you know what? That needs nothing done to it. Or it needs literally just push this bit or whatever. And that is You've real it. genius. You've nailed it. To have that You've degree of confidence it. as well. Absolutely. And what's one thing that I learned very early on with working with, with ranking. My first ranking shoot was late 90s. And that particular shoot was a real light bulb moment for me because it made me, up until that point, I'd always been product heavy. It was always about the cut. It was always about manipulating the hair with product and, and or irons or whatever it would be to grit. And I remember working with him on that and he stripped everything back. He made us like, use hardly any product. In fact, we were using a water spray a lot on the hair. And it yeah. was about the nuance, the little nuances of hair and this beautiful detail. And when I think back now, and it, it stuck with me and it's still there now. And sometimes I'll do things on set and it just brings, it takes me back to that moment. And those are the things that you just can't teach people. It, that stuff comes to you naturally and, it, and it's, a, it's a bit of a gift. Um, so it's, it's the nuance. It's those, and you're absolutely right. And you know, I remember seeing Guido years ago, literally putting no product in, in, in the hair on, and just using his hands to manipulate the texture. And the finish is just unbelievable. And I think it's them sort of moments, those those that you capture on camera especially. Um, I know they do it for fashion shows, but that's obviously, you know, it's, it's a real-life situation. But certainly when it's a still and it's caught in the moment, there's something very beautiful about that, those those little kind of moments. And and they're the things that are, that are absolutely a million miles away from what you do as a salon hairdresser, um, yeah. which, is a, which, which is a good comparison. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always intrigued as to how they shift you, you know, like a, a photographer, how they shift your thinking, your perspective. Is it that he comes up to you and gives you a visual reference? Or is it that he, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I want something like this, or why don't you do it more like this? Or I saw this and such and such, let's go for that. Is it that? Or is it that he uses words to talk to you about, mm. I don't know, some emotion or something that you're trying mm. to capture? Or Do you see where I'm trying to get to with that? Yeah, yeah. No, it does, and it depends. It, it depends, Anthony. I mean, I think it depends on who we're working for, what the project is. If it's a personal thing we're doing, then it, 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 we can literally just rock up and shoot. And what happens in the moment is really what is really special. Yeah. There's other times where we're doing something for a big client when you'll spend weeks leading up to that job or that, that particular campaign or whatever it might be of, of researching heavily, heavily researching and pulling references. And, and, they, and they're not, I mean, a lot of the time they're not even hair references. They, they can be, they can be material. It can be architecture. It can be this. It can be a, a million different things just yeah. to get your brain into a different way of looking at something um, to start thinking about hair. And I think there's a big part of anybody who does anybody in the session game that certainly does fashion and works with maybe fashion designers or creative directors or fashion stylists will understand this is that 
finding the sort of finding the 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 narrative, the the, the thing that brings it all together is obviously the the, the the golden spot is that point that you all need to try and come to. Um, and I think that is beyond your skill as a hairdresser. That become that that is totally down to your who you are as a person and how you think and and visualize and see things and and how well read you are, how articulate yeah. you are. I mean, um, so I think there's all of that stuff. And I so I think definitely it can be it can be a combination of things. Um, but also it's, that's why I, I was you know saying before that it's important to research because if you really know your history in in certain pivotal moments in fashion and hair and music and all of those brilliant references that we, we, we tend to sort of go to, then it's easy for Rankin to say to me, I want you to think of such and such from the 60s or, or this from that period. Mm. Or, yeah. And I know it right away. I, I understand it. Young hairdressers that come to assist me, if I say, you know, think, you know, 1982 Basquiat, New York, they're going to laugh at me. Unless yeah. they've researched, unless they've done their, unless they're into art and they understand. So I, I think it's a different, and it's much easier to research now because we have the mm-hmm. iPhone and we can go mm-hmm. to Instagram and Google and all of that stuff. And it makes it a lot, it makes it great. And it's, it's great, but it also makes you lazy. Um, so there's a, it's got its pros and its cons. Yeah. Sorry if I've gone off piece a little bit. No, not there, at all. No, not at all. I was. I, I think it's I, all... I, I'm. I'm intrigued by that as to what. Yeah. What it is that sets one photographer apart from another. Do you know what I mean? Like, like in that relationship, why is he so successful? You know, why David Sims, we mentioned before, what is it yeah. about that makes him so successful? And that relationship with you, and how they, you know, how how that synergizes because it's sort of mm. got to be. Like the photographer, it's ultimately their responsibility, the job. So it's like yeah. their vision that they've got. And when you bring that girl on set and put them in front of the camera and they go, I don't like it, do it again. It's like, because that happens. That's the reality. It's yeah, like, it happens, happens, it's like, happens a lot. It's one thing saying do it again, but it's like, well, do it again into what? what? Do, do, do what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, 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 and that's the, so that's what, the worst what is feeling that? in the world. Yeah, it is. That's probably why I stopped doing it as quickly as I started it. Um, what, what is it that sets one photographer apart from the other? They all, they all have their own kind of vision and aesthetic, and I think they all challenge um, the viewer in a different way. They, 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 they're provoking you in a different way. It's, it's, that's the way I'd like to sort of describe something like Rankin. He challenges what beauty is sometimes. I mean... When I first started looking at his work in the early 90s, when he was doing a lot of the kind of nude, he was really pushing nudes of, of and you know, and, it's, and God, we talk about this now and how much the climate has changed and what you can and can't do anymore in this day and age. But the the sort of, the, the they were really challenging what beauty was and, and shooting lots of things that, you know, and I remember him doing his first ever um, for, for a Unilever brand called Dove for their skincare where he, would, he, he made all the, he shot all the women naked once on, and it was the first time it had ever been, an advert like that had ever been on television. So mm. those types of visionaries, those people that are, 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 you know, prepared to put their neck on the line. I think Rankin is one of them. In fact, all of the big guys that you talk about will all have their own aesthetic, their own um, way of doing that, in, in, which has become synonymous to them. And, um, Rankin's different, I think, because he has he has is sort of a lot of those guys are very much in just in the fashion side or beauty side, whereas somebody like Rankin is is this sort of for me art and commerce. He's, he understands yeah. the, the full creative artistic side, but yet he gets he fully understands the business, and um, which is why he's in such demand and why big powerhouse brands from Rolls Royce to you know Unilever brands to whoever it might be will will book him to to create their latest sort of campaigns. It's, it's really yeah. special to watch. So I heard you talking uh, about him uh, previously and you were talking about how, you know, in his studio setup, you know, because like you said, he started Days of Confused and, and, and now Hunger, but he's got like a team of like 80 odd people. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a huge it's an empire. factory, isn't it? Of, of creativity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a well-oiled sort of what probably Warhol was doing in, in, in his sort of time in New York, but I think it's 
but this is very much a business. This is, um, I mean, everybody that's there is there to do a job and they know they're there to do a job and whether it's marketing or it's, you know, um, the creative side or whatever it might be, they're, they're all firing on all cylinders at all times and the work ethic is, is pretty special. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great environment to be in. Um, and, and funny enough, they've just made me, I mean, they've never done it before, but the, this last, the, the last two issues, they've made me the, the hair editor of Hunger Magazine, which is, which wow. is a new thing they've never done before, which is a massive, massive yeah. deal. I mean, people, people are like, what's a hair editor? Well, you have a beauty editor that kind of puts their sort of stamp on the beauty work that's been done throughout the magazine and give them, the, gives you their aesthetic. But Hair-wise, it's kind of a similar sort of situation where I give my approval or the direction or the people that maybe we should be working with or who I'm excited by or who should we be bringing into the magazine and things like that. So he gives me the trust back as well, which is really special. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Okay. Um, You mentioned a couple of names before, uh, Eugene, uh, Guido. Um, What is it that sets these guys apart? I mean – you know, obviously we're talking to you as well and we've talked to Duffy and, you know, you guys are like at the very top of the pinnacle. Um, when you are objectively looking at other people like Eugene um, or Guido, who who you admire, what is it that sets them apart? I think they're changing the game. I think they're game changers. I think they, you, it, it'll happen. It could be Maison Maisella, the night before and you'll think to yourself what's Eugene going to do this season at Maisella I mean I was lucky a couple of seasons ago I was mentoring a team of hairdressers and he invited them to the to backstage to to the Maison show and, and the Maison Maisella and three days leading up to that show I was watching them prepare three days of, of, of preparation normally you, you've got a four hour prep before the show three hours you do the show the show goes out and you're done and you're on to the next show yeah. Whereas that relationship with him and Pat McGrath doing makeup and, and you know, whoever's styling it, but it was Katie England at the time. And, and just watching them for three days come up with the concept of what is then going to go out on the runway is unbelievable. And I think it's, it's challenging you. It, it's that thing I said to you earlier of them, you've seen them doing something that you feel you just haven't seen before. Guido has it. Eugene has it in abundance. I mean, I think he does it all. I mean, yeah, he regurgitates things, but he does it in a really clever way where you think, fuck, he's done it again. Um, and I think that's the thing that sets them apart. They are not afraid to push the, you know, push the envelope and take it somewhere else and challenge us of how we, we perceive what, what it is we're looking at. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, yeah. sometimes things can look a bit dangerous or you might not like it or it might, be too, you know, it's challenging the way that you look at it and things like that. So I think that's, that's what they do, which is really, really special. And um, yeah, I mean, you've got nothing but admiration for them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just uh, changing direction a little bit. When yes. we talk about hair in a, in a, in a salon sense, which, you know, a lot, a lot of the manufacturers will talk about how um, their new collections are driven by the catwalk. Okay, um, you know it's from the catwalk to the salon industry, so to speak. Um, what I want to ask you about is trends. Uh, how important are trends in in hair fashion, and and what is it that that really drives them? Because when you when yeah. you're talking about what you were just talking about, you know, with with what Eugene might do or what Guido might do, and it's completely off the wall stuff. Yeah. Drawing the link between that and the high street is sometimes a fairly, you know. That's right. Oh, so to speak. Yeah. 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 So, so, so what, what drives trends? Like where do they come from and how important are they these days? Well, ultimately I think everything is always driven by the clothes. So I think, you know, you, 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 apart from the handful of those guys at that level, even, and I think Duffy's become one of those actually. I think Duffy's mm-hmm. now at that elite level where he's working with big powerhouse brands where they're, they're sort of almost part of that, they're creating, they're changing the face of and perception of, of the way, you know, hair and fashion sort of work together. But my take on it is that is this, I think that the clothes ultimately drive what you do with the hair. So that, that's first and foremost. I think trends were very, very important a few years ago. I think it was very much at the heart of what all the big companies out there were saying, or what's the latest trend and whatever. And I, and I still think there's an element of that. 
what's really beautiful what's happening right now though is the, is this is the way that the world is whether you whether you, you feel good about it or not that they that there's an individuality happening there's an individuality come back to the runway especially where we used to sort of try and make everybody quite cloned looking and it, it would be a, a particular look that you would put out on 40 models whether it be boys or girls and they would all have this similar kind of aesthetic walking down the runway that's changing quite dramatically. If you look at Saint Laurent or you look at Louis Vuitton or big, big powerhouse commercial brands, but huge, big fashion house brands, their perception of what the girl should be or the boy or this whole gender fluid thing that's happening, which is really brilliant, is a very different, a different thing to what was happening five years ago. So I think in, in terms of trends as such, it's kind of really starting to disappear. And I think it's all, and it, and it almost in a weird way, Anthony, is relating back to what we do as a hairdresser in the salon. We get a yeah. client in the chair. It's all about that individuality. And what do we do to create the best version of that client we can do? Yeah. And how do we take them into that? And that is definitely spilled into the world I'm in now. We do, you know, and, and, and also it's crazy. Things like when you're on set of working with, you know, sort of Afro hair or textured hair where before you might use a wig or you would straighten the hair or you would try and make the hair more sort of European or Caucasian or whatever. All of these brilliant things that are happening that, that in the climate we're in right now, we're drawing back to what is best for that individual person and challenging what beauty is. It's a really, really exciting time. It's a great time for, 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 for what I do as a hairdresser because it allows me to do things to push what I'm doing in a very different way. And I think going back to the sort of trend element, it, it's sort of, that's really what the trend is. The trend now is about individuality. It's about promoting those little kind of unique nuances to the person that's unique to, you know, Anthony Whitaker or, or what's unique to Nick Irwin. It's what we, what, what we like to look like, what we feel like and, and enhancing that and taking it, you know, making it better. And I think that's really where it's at right now. I don't know if that answers yeah. your question, though. Yeah, no, it does. And you you even answered the next question. You just segued right. into it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. the next question was going to be, you know, where is hair fashion heading? And mm. uh, you've answered it, that, that, you know, the trend is is heading towards individuality and 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 that, you know, there's lots of different things that, that drive that. And I'm, I'm going to talk about, uh, COVID to you and and how that how you feel that's impacted things in a minute, but I can sort of see there's like this perfect storm of lots of different things that are happening, which is what's yeah. driving that. And I think that's fantastic. You know that yeah, that, that individuality thing is happening. Um, but but on a on a, a slightly different um, uh, you know direction, uh, where do you see the hair industry? heading what direction do you see you know because you've got a you've had a big involvement in the salon world and multiple countries whether it's the us australia or the uk um so you have a you know an interesting insight into that uh, how do you see the industry evolving as a, as a salon industry i i would like to think well i don't think i know and i think this is definitely what needs to happen i have these conversations with 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 a lot of close um, colleagues and friends and people and people like people like Eugene, that, you know, on a regular basis, and where it's all heading. And I think I hope that the big companies out there are ready for change, are ready for the next big thing. Because I feel the and I'll say it, I'll be very honest about it. I think the industry has been quite flat for for quite some time. I think nobody's really coming out with anything that's. Um, I feel everything's looking very similar, you know, whether I'm, whether I'm judging awards or everybody's, this is a formula, everything's quite formulated. That's not to say it's bad. I'm not, I'm not knocking it by any means, but I think things are, look, I've sort of blended together a lot more. And I think the climate in other parts of our other industries that are connected to is like fashion. You know, if you look at the beauty industry, if you look at makeup, if you look at brands like Pat McGrath, Pat Labs, I mean, it's incredible. They're groundbreaking. They're pushing it to, into a, a whole different world, a different theater, a different way of looking at doing makeup. So, so we're, I think now what needs to happen is that we all need to be thinking more artisanal. I think the sort of general fodder that is pushed out there that I think because of what's been happening in the last sort of year with COVID, et cetera, and I know we're going to come on to that, I think. I think unless we're ready for something new on the back of what's when we come out of this, then brands are going to suffer because the, because he's the deal. Clients, the public, um, 
whoever it might be, that's a consumer that's buying your product or buying into what you do as a hairdresser or as a consumer, they are going to they're going they're going to demand something of a, of a of a higher purpose of a higher a higher understanding, and I think on a on a, on a different conscious level altogether. Um, and I think a lot of these sort of middle of the road kind of brands that just knock things out for the sake of them that goes right across the board in many industries are going to mm. suffer. I think the, the street brands, the ones that are kind of right at it at the, at the forefront of things, will, will start to become stronger. Things are more creative, more artistic. And the artisanal sort of top brands, you know, the brands that really, and that's probably luxury where people can afford it, they're, they're going to they're succeed as well. But I think that middle element, that part in the middle, there's going to be a lot of, um, there's going to be a lot of casualties. And, and I think we, so the big companies, I think they owe it to the industry, the hairdressers globally, to be able to come up with something that can then take them, give them the opportunity, give them the platform. Where do, what's the zeitgeist? What's the next big thing? Mm. Um, and I kind of think I know what it is. I think I know, I know, I, I, I feel I know what, what the, the, the whole world needs to see in hair. I think that there hasn't been a movement for a long time, Anthony. I mean, I think if you look at what Vidal did, you know, in the 60s and 70s, if you look at Tony and Guy, what they did, you know, sort of the late 80s, 90s, um, potentially Bumble maybe what they sort of did with their product line um, Paul Mitchell's another one you know like a game changer in the way that they did I mean there's some great brilliant brands out there product companies etc cetera, etc cetera. but nobody we, we need something to happen something needs to come along now and sort of really tear the rule book up and change the game and get us all absolutely sort of obsessed again with it all um, mm. and I think well, and I think I, I, I don't know what that is I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I mean I think I do but I'm, I'm not maybe prepared to say it yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, well, I, 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 I think we're in the eye of the storm at the moment yes, we are. with, with yeah, COVID. We are. And we're, it's difficult to see what's happening outside the eye of the storm. But, you know, when you look back and you talk about, I mean, you just knocked off a few generations there when you talked about mm -hmm. the 60s with Vidal and, mm -hmm. you know, what happened in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. I mean, fashion changed, but it wasn't just that fashion was changing on its own. There is always huge social movements that are happening, you know, that, right. that are caused by economic shifts, political shifts, you know, wars, all sorts of things impact on this. And, and, and then in hindsight, we look back at them and we go, well, of course, the 50s was all about glamour because that was a direct response to the end right. of the Second World War and people yeah. wanting to live again and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there will inevitably be a big shift in lots of different areas society because we, we've just gone through a year of essentially lockdown. The world has stopped. And mm -hmm. I mean, no one who's alive at the moment has ever lived through anything like this before. So mm -hmm. we're in the eye of the storm because it's not just a health right. epidemic. It's also the huge financial yeah. slap on the face yeah. that we can get Absolutely. on the other side of this. And it is going to impact on, on fashion in every context, and, and not just fashion, consumerism, how we live, how we work, how we teach, all of this stuff is, is you know, up for grabs as a direct result of that. So can I just ask you, in your role um, as a session editorial hairdresser, has COVID impacted on you? Well, it, it's, been, it's been tricky. I mean, the first, the first part of COVID was, was very difficult because I'd gone from you know, working pretty much every day, um, shooting or, and whatever to, to nothing. I mean, it was, it was literally, I mean, like everybody, I mean, and so, so financially it was tough. Um, you know, I'm lucky that I'm part of a brand. We have a hair brand. So that kind of was ticking over, but still we were, we were like everybody else. We were impacted massively that in that sense as well through, through, through consumer and through the hairdresser. Um, and, but the, but what it did for me, sort of, I think in that period of time, it gave me, like it did for a lot of people, time to really sit back and analyze where we're at and what we're doing. I think sort of maybe be more connected spiritually to what's going on in the world and, and sort of having time to think about, you know, the next part of your journey and where you want to be and how you want to be perceived and all of those things and have a moral compass in life. Um the second part of lockdown for me has been has been incredible. I mean, it's, we've been super busy. Um, my my sector, if you want to call it that, the sort of freelance game has been quite busy. And I think people have realised what you can and can't shoot because obviously there was that restriction through through the first lockdown. So brands have caught, sort of caught up now and found new ways of making things work and 
I've had a couple of trips away and I'm off to Dubai next week to do a big, big job for a week. And so this, it's happening again, but I think it's a very different mindset, different climate, different set of rules when you're on set, different mentality. Um, you know, is it for the best? Parts of part. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sort of an optimistic guy. So I think, yes, it is. I think it's, it's been, some, I, I'm a great believer things happen for a reason, but uh, I, you know, I don't want that to be a throwaway statement because obviously a lot of people sort of really suffered through this. Yeah. Um, but I do, but I think change is good. And I think it, it will, it will, this thing of reset, I know it gets thrown around a lot, but I definitely think it's, um, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a part of change that's, that's for the good. I, I really believe that. Once yeah, no, through it, it, I, I totally agree. Yeah. We're, we're right in the middle of it, and yeah. it'll be interesting when we look back at this. Now, you you just uh, mentioned uh, very briefly there about your brand that you're a part of, um, oh, and I know okay. that you are a uh, part owner, uh, if I'm oh. correct in saying that, um, and you're the global creative director for the brand Anti or Anti, depending on what country you're right, in. Because it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, it was, I mean, I, you know, I've been obviously global creative director with, with Anthony at TG for a long time. And, to, and obviously they sold to Unilever. Um, and that was a powerhouse brand. And I think everything that I'd sort of learned at that brand, huge shoes, lots of different products that did lots of the same, similar things, uh, aimed at different markets of clients. I thought if we ever did a product line, it would be about um, something that was very compact, very artisanal something which you literally like what I do when I'm working on set. I use four or five products. That's it. You know, I don't use 20 different things for 20 different looks. I've got my, it's like a, your condiments as a chef. I mean, that's what you stick yeah. to and, and that's how I create everything. So what, this is what the line's about. It's compact. It's small, um, super high level ingredients. Um, packaging is super important to us because I think it's all about, you know, belonging to, we've created this, this whole thing, what anti stands for, and this kind of movement almost is the way that we think and believe about, you know, what's happening in hair and, and what's happening just morally, you know, with a moral compass in life, uh, what our views are on the world. And, and, and I, and we're having fun with it. I mean, it's a tricky one because people are sort of a little bit afraid at the beginning. I think because it's new and it's different and it smells different and the products perform in a different way. You've got to get your head around them. There, there, it's, there's an element of alchemy of mixing them together and things. And, but that's the beauty of it. And um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And what, what's really great, Anthony for, Anthony, for me as a creative is is that I have full control over the creative direction of it. And it's very much in the heart of the youth culture and what, what the, I hate to say the kids because it makes us feel, makes me feel really old, but it's, it's, it's the sort of what I was as a teenager, the next big thing that we're always looking for and, and giving them the microphone, if you like, to sort of, to say, right, what, this is where we're, we're taking it. And I think that world is very much influenced in luxury now. If you look at, you yeah. look at, you know, brands like Supreme, um, you know, connecting with some of the big fashion houses, you know, Couture meets the street, you know, from Louis Vuitton to, I mean, it's, it's insane what's going on in the world. And, and, and it's brilliant. I think I love how everything is amalgamated together. So, so we've, we've, um, we've taken that on board. And I think this brand is very much at the heart of, heart of that. And we've opened a space close to where I live in, in, um, in Brixton. Here in in South London, uh, which is an old railway arch, where I is it, it doubles up as a photographic studio. We use it to education, online education, which we'll be doing in the new year. Um, and um, and yeah, you can rent it out. You can rent the space. You can you can come and do clients out of there if you want to. If you want to work out of there, I mean, it's a it's a I want it to be a multifunctional space where people can feel part of it as a as a community. And and um, yeah, so it's super exciting. So that's what cool. we're doing with that. Yeah. Well, I, th I think, you know, you were, mentioned the word luxury. I love the packaging of Anti or Thank Anti. Uh, it looks yeah. very luxurious. It looks very premium. So I totally get where you're coming from with that. Um, and, and it's interesting, it's background, isn't it? I, I know um, I've met Frank, who's like yeah. a pre yep. Frank yeah, from Prima, right. who yeah, started yeah. in Sydney and Australia, and now mm -hmm. he's got a salon in New York, and now you've got the York, studio yeah. in London. Yep. So it's very yep. sort of global in the way the whole thing's mm -hmm. been put together. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah. it's interesting. Thing, I, it's I met, thing. yeah, I, I met Frank when I was still part of TG. He was a TG client, and we, I just loved what he did. I loved their aesthetic at Prema, and and I've always had, obviously, I've got an affinity with hairdressers in Australia. I love, I love the, the industry down there. I feel, 
I felt very much part of it when I lived there, and I still do when I go there. I've, you know, it's I've got a lot of almost like a second family there, and and so me and Frank coming together after leaving TG was was a bit of a no brainer. And he had this vision as a salon owner; he wanted to create something which had never he'd always envisaged maybe other people doing for him as, a, as product companies, but never that had never happened. And um, and we got together, and that's how it came about. And we've got a girl who. He's ex-Bumble and Bumble, who worked on all the formulations, Mercedes, um, and a, a chap who looks after all the, um, the business, the, the global running of the business, our, and the financial side, and, and Glenn, who, and he's incredible. So, so we've got a really nice, tight team, um, and everybody does bring something to the table that's very special. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was a bit of a no-brainer, and, and, and really nice, to be honest with you, to be able to have that connection with, with Australia again, even though Frank's been living over here, um, for the last, even though he's got the sign in New York, but he's been over here for the last sort of six months, uh, so last year, and then now back in Sydney because of COVID. Um, it's great. It, ju- it just sort of unites us with the rest of the world. But yeah, it's very much a global offering. And um, yeah, I mean, hopefully if we can get through this next phase over over COVID, then we'll um, yeah watch this space. We're excited about the future. Yeah, I, I noticed that uh, in something I read about it, the word collective came up a few times. Mm. And again, you know, relevant to what we were just talking about before with mm. fashion and trends and young people today and COVID and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I keep banging on about how I see that that is what a lot of the future is about, is different working models, different ways of working together. Absolutely. And I know that Frank's always <clears> been <throat> big on that with the, the yeah, Prima business comes, model. Yeah, it has, and that's and that's what it's about. And I think if I mean anybody knows him, is Frank say, um, you know, he has a, he's an entrepreneur, and and he's also, but he's a very good people's person, and he's very good at bringing people together. And I'd like to think I am. I think I'm always about the next generation. I mean, one of the reasons for us to open up in close to where I live and, and was putting something back into the community. But I, you know, I want to find, you know, I want to find the next kid off the the estate in Brixton, somebody who could yeah. potentially make the wrong decision in life. And go down one route, maybe get involved with a gang or whatever, and, and, and think, hold on a minute, what's that cool space in Brixton? I've never g- given people opportunities where they walk past the space and go, there's a shoot going on, or there's me on talking, to, you know, doing some a client or whatever it might be. Just trying to get sort of bring something back into the community and, and hopefully find the next superstar in that sense. So it's, we're very much a collective. It's very much about bringing people together and also not being snobby a snobbery towards each other's hairdressers. I think we, the only way we can all, and you know, I know that you very much believe in this with what you do with your brand. Um, Anthony is, is about coming together as an industry. It's the only way that we can progress and move forward. So that's very much at the heart of who we are. Good. Good. Is it, is it a collective in the sense of ownership or I know, I know that you're a part owner of the brand. And yeah, I mean, for us it is, but we, yeah, but what we do is we, we absolutely, when it comes to, we do a, a sort of cooperative in the, in the sharing of, the product. So when people are selling it, it's not one of the big things that, you know, what's going to happen, what's happening to all the big brands out there, as you know, is that the biggest issue is brands like Amazon that are sort of people can go and buy, you know, get the product cheaper or buy it online from other, other outlets. So we want mm-hmm. to try and control it ourselves that way and give the kickback and the, and the, and the collectiveness of that back to the hairdresser. So that the hairdressers, so it's a win-win situation all the time that it's never, it's never a situation where somebody, there's another fat cat out there taking the, you know, the, um, the cream as such off the top. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's very much a collective in that sense, but a collective in many different ways of thinking of coming together as, as, as people in the way that we think and believe that the world should, should yeah. be moving towards. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. It is. It is. Now I just want to, before we start to wrap up, you, you, you alluded to before about um, how you'd, you you love the idea of giving other people opportunities and some kid mm. that might whose life career might take a, mm. a wrong turn and that somehow you're able to mm. influence them through, you know, the presence of the brand and what you do, et cetera. Um, what I wanted to ask you about was looking back on your career, you know, because mm. we've known each other for a long time, um, yep. you know, 30 odd years. Uh, what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned about life? You know, Hard well, lessons, but good lessons, important yeah, lessons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Journey. It's interesting, Anthony, talking to you today because talking to you sort of reminds me of the days in Sydney and Australia and and in the sort of early nineties. And in them days, it was very hedonistic. And you know, I was, I'm a DJ, and I was DJing in clubs, and 
and what went with that, what came with that lifestyle at the time. And, you know, and I think of being in Tony and Guy and, and working and whatever with, with this sort of rock and roll mentality and traveling. And But you can get, when you're a young hairdresser, young with all this stuff at your sort of fingertips, it's, it, um, you know, you can become a bit sort of self-indulgent. And at the time, you know, we got heavily into drugs. We were partying very hard and, and, and sort of, you know, and it was all recreational, but, but, you know, elements of that definitely affected our work. It affected sort of parts of what we were doing as, as maybe the way we were treating each other as hairdressers and, and sort of, you know, there'll be confrontational sort of moments in, 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 um, I mean, when I think back at some of the things that went, went on over the years in, 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 in the salon and whatever, but we always try to sort of keep a level of professionalism. But I said, the point I'm, the reason I'm telling you this stuff, which, which I think is really important is that, Look on back in it, I would never, I would never not sort of, I mean, I'm a parent now, so I've got to be careful what I, how I sort of say this, but I think that it's, you, you know, you learn from those situations and looking back on it, you would have probably, not saying I wouldn't have done it, but I would have certainly maybe not done it to the extent we were doing it. Um, and it can be dangerous, that stuff. And I think you need to find the balance with anything in life. I think we're in a very different era now and, and that culture was very much the sort of, on the back of the acid house scene, the sort of parties, the raves, the, the music scene, and all of that. And, and I think what comes with that is a drug culture and a, and a partying culture and drinking and whatever. So but it was a very hedonistic period. And I think there's parts of it that there was a few decisions that I probably made at the time, which were probably due to the, my, my sort of lack of clarity. Um, mm. I mean, the last, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually four years um, sober now. So it's in the last four years of my life has been amazing because I, for the first time, probably since I was 17, I'm seeing things in a very, very clear, um, sort of, you know, clear way of, of looking at life. And, and so maybe connecting a thing is a bit spiritually. So I think, you know, for young, anybody, young head that's watching this or listen, sorry, listening to this, I would, so my advice would be, you know, just to sort of, you know, always, always think before you, you dive into something. But, at the same time, you know, I don't want to be one of those old guys that goes, don't do this, don't do that, because life's about, you know, having fun and enjoying yourself. But, um, yeah, looking back on it, there was certainly parts of it that could have gone, you know, I was very fortunate that I had people that believed in me, like people like Dennis Lankford, in, in Tony and Guy in Sydney, who was very tolerant, um, and, and Anthony especially, Anthony Muscolo, you know, you know, we were sort of, but we, it was, we, were all, we were all doing it, we were all rock and roll, we were all having fun at the time. And, um, and, and, you know, luckily I've come out of it unscathed just at the end of it all. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think when you're in your twenties and thirties, early thirties, uh, you think you're bulletproof. Um, you do. Do you know what I mean? I, do. I and, mean, I got, and, I, I got ill. I mean, I got ill recently. I mean, I, I, five years ago, I, I, I sort of was diagnosed type two diabetic and then I ended up in hospital and, and, and was really poorly with this sort of blood infection and, you know, could quite easily, I mean, they said to my wife one day, like, you know, he's on a knife edge. I mean, I could have gone either way. So that was a wake up call that really sort of, you know, since then for me, I've become very, you know, I'm sort of, I mean, I was always vegetarian anyway for the last sort of seven or eight years, but, but, you know, became sort of abstinent with alcohol and, and certain foods, you know, no, you know, no carbohydrate, no sugar, all of those things, you know, intermittent fasting, lots and lots of things that are really, give me clarity in the way and you know your life benefits from it I mean you it's yeah. it's amazing really what it does to you and um, I'm not saying you need to do that in your early 20s or, or even early 30s but yeah yeah anyway you get you get you get the sort of you get the gist of what I'm talking about yeah no definitely definitely and I don't just to to, to wrap up I know that uh, you've been very active in doing stuff to bring on or to help uh, the next generation of hairdressers, and I know you're very passionate about that. So, um, you know, w w what is it that that motivates that? Um, I think it stems back to being given the opportunity by people like Anthony at a very young age. You know, in my early twenties, being able to um, they're them seeing that sort of that young hairdresser in me and nurturing me and, and giving me a platform to work. And and if they hadn't done that for me, I wouldn't be where I am. So I want it, it's about giving it back. And, and obviously I'm passionate about the industry, Anthony. Yeah. I want to see us all, I want to see it really go to the next level. The only way we can do that is to train and, and give these guys the platform to take it to the next level. It's that simple. Um, and, and being around young people keeps us young and makes us good at what we do. 
let's not forget yeah. that. Oh, look, you know, I so always say it's one of the single biggest most important advantages thing. of this industry is you're surrounded yeah. by young people and it keeps you young. You know, different attitudes, Absolutely. different ways of thinking, different ways of looking at the world, different ways of, 100%. you know, defining what beauty is and, and challenging, mm-hmm. you know, work, mm-hmm. you know, styles, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, good. Okay. Well, listen, it's. Um, well, I, I need to uh, start wrapping up, unfortunately. It's been fantastic oh, talking to you. That went really um, quickly. Nick, wh- wh- where can people connect with you on Instagram or other social channels? Well, I think you can, you can. I mean, my Instagram is the one that people, most people come to me through, um, yeah. which, which is um, uh, Nico in hair. And, um, and, um, yeah, just click on Nico and hair and, and, and on, on my Instagram, you can get that. Um, I mean, I'm on Facebook and things like that, but I, I, my Instagram is the one I think that we all use these days. Certainly our, our sort of part of the industry and you can see what work we're working on and look at the stories and things like that. Um, but yeah, you know, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can, you can send an email, you know, you can email me at, um, at, uh, Nick, Nico and anti-collective.com. Um, yeah, any of those things. I mean, you know, it'd be, be great to um, to connect with you. And, you know, if you're ever in Brixton in London, please feel free to pop in and see us. Look us up and, uh, and well, I'll, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Show you around. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll put those links uh, on our website and in the show notes for today's podcast. If you're listening to this podcast with Nick Irwin and you've enjoyed it, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. I think Nick has shared... Uh, uh, an amazing amount of wisdom. I've absolutely loved sitting here listening to his uh, his insights and his take on everything. So, uh, Nick, to wrap up, thank you very much for being our guest on today's uh, episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Have you got any final words for our audience? Um, just, to, just to say thank you to you, Anthony, because you know probably all those years ago, you what you did t- turning me down probably. Um, allowed me to become the person who I otherwise I might have been with you forever. Exactly. See, everything happens for a reason. I didn't, I I knocked you back for a very good reason. So thank you for thanking me. So not giving you a job when I had the opportunity. Absolutely. (laughs) Brilliant. All right. You'll haunt you for the rest of your life. Well, I was okay. Great to talk to you. Cheers, mate. You too. All the best. Bye now. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.